Hello and welcome to episode number 135 of the Random Thoughts Podcast. That's R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com online. I am your host, Darren O'Neill. On today's show, we have a few things to cover, including some relevations about a juror in the Derek Chauvin trial, the George Floyd murder trial. We also have a verdict from the Facebook Supreme Court, which I mean, it's a little less exciting than the United States Supreme Court. But when it comes to Donald Trump and his ban on the social media platform, we have some information on Donald Trump's new social media outlet. And we want to talk a little bit about podcasting 2.0 because citizen journalism is getting more important as every day goes on because mainstream journalism is not doing the job. There are organizations with a lot of money behind them, the major cable news networks and the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, all of them seem to be failing the American public because they're being run by people now more interested in activism than telling you what is actually going on and reporting the truth. We just saw that with a story about Rudy Giuliani that was pushed to all the major news organizations and then a correction had to come out. And you have to wonder how multiple major news organizations all get something wrong. Well, it's pretty easy when you don't care about the truth. It's pretty easy when the mentality for news is now we want to be there first. It's the Twitter mentality. It's the social media mentality where things come down to speed rather than accuracy. And we've been seeing this in all sorts of things over the last few years. A lot of it when it comes to sports is a game of just being able to say, this is the person who first brought the news because I guess that's the best clickbait. They're the ones that get the most clicks and thus they are the ones generating the most traffic. And now that's what it's about, bringing traffic rather than being correct. So podcasting 2.0 is a concept that Adam Curry, the podfather, former MTV VJ who revolutionized this whole industry by understanding what an RSS feed could do years and years ago when the always on internet connection first began way back then the concept of being able to turn on a device like your cell phone and instantly listen to anything you want downloading this real time via cell towers or Wi-Fi, depending on where you are, it didn't exist. So the concept was, even though these were always on connections, it might still take minutes or hours to download something like a short podcast. But if you could do that in the background, so when you're sleeping, the phone, well, then it wasn't even a phone. It was more just an iPod or some kind of other MP3 player. But your device, your computer would download the audio file in the middle of the night or whenever it came out in the background. So you didn't even know it was happening. 
and then it was just transferred to your device. So it just kind of magically appeared there. Things have come a long way since then, and simple audio files, like most podcasts still are, are just the beginning of what can be done with this format. And while it's something that is still not widely embraced by a lot of the podcasting apps, it's something that is picking up a lot of steam with a lot of creators in the podcast community because the additions to this space are things that can make podcasts much more interesting, much more helpful to the people who are consuming them, and also provide a way for the podcasters to get paid, to get value back from the people listening. But this is all something that is still slowly rolling out. And there's a lot of really big podcasts out there that still don't take advantage of any of the things that Podcasting 2.0 has brought to the table. Now, you can follow along with way more detail than we can possibly bring you here by going over to the website podcastindex.org and checking out what's going on there with the index and subscribing to the podcast that Adam Curry and Dave Jones are doing covering all of these things. And that is called Podcasting 2.0. But on one of the last episodes of Adam Curry's show, the No Agenda show that he does with John C. Dvorak, they chose me to get everybody out. I guess we're the evangelists to get other podcasters familiar with this and up and running. And I have been embracing these changes as they came out up until the value part of it, because the value part of it's a little more intense, shall we say, to get it set up. But there's a few things that are pretty easy if you're a podcaster that you can add to your show to make things a little bit better for the people that are consuming. One is chapters, which gives people an easy way to go to a specific part of your show. More for me to go back and find something to clip or do something like that, because the way I consume podcasts, and this is a lot of podcasters, you want people to listen to your show from start to finish and look at it as one performance. You don't normally want somebody to just listen to three to five minutes of a half hour show because they just want a little bit. But the chapters file added to a podcast lets people do just that. It breaks down the audio in a way that people can skip around and find things, especially going back a second time after they've heard a show, because that can be quite helpful for people to clip a little portion of the show, post it to social media, and hopefully result in more people finding your show and listening to your show. One of the other things that is available is a transcript, which is the most useful, I believe, for search engines to be able to push people towards your show more than anything else. And the services that are available to do the transcripts that are out there now are fairly inexpensive, but they're also not 100% perfect. So unless you want to spend a lot of time going through making sure the transcript is absolutely right, that may also add a little bit more to your workflow, but it might also bring more people into your show. 
Now, there's also a person tag, which I find to be quite interesting, especially if you're a podcaster who goes on to different shows. It makes it easier for people to find what shows you've been on. And that is a plus. But the tag that is probably most interesting for podcasters is the value tag, which is tied to cryptocurrency, which will let people stream you money while they listen to your podcast. There's a lot of podcasts, ours included, that are all listener, producer, fan, whatever you want to call the people that consume your show, supported. If you look around the podcasting sphere, you'll see that people have tried a whole lot of different solutions in order to get funds from the supporters of the show to the people doing the show. This could be anything from PayPal, having a P.O. box address, using something like Patreon. And what this does is kind of cuts out that middleman and allows for the listener's app to send cryptocurrency to the podcaster as they listen. And this is all going to be based on a certain amount that the person listening can set of what they call Satoshis, but this could also change depending on different crypto that will eventually be rolled into this. But you set an amount, and it's probably a low amount, unless you're Bill Gates, although he's going to be losing a little bit of money, I think, now in that divorce. But you can set the thing to say, okay, every minute, send a penny. So every hour, you'd be sending 60 cents or whatever it is. Up to you what you want to send. And then as you listen to those podcasts, If they have this value tag, that amount of crypto comes out of your wallet and goes into theirs with a percentage going to the people in between every now and then for various things. But you can set this up and then you can do a boost. So if you really like something a podcaster said, you can hit boost and maybe that sends them a buck or whatever it is. And this is still in its infancy, but the proof of concept is done. It works. And it's something that is just going to take the general podcasting listening public to embrace. And that's going to be a big question on if that's going to happen, because we know that about 1% or so of people that listen to podcasts, because they are a free product, will donate to the show. Now, that's a little different sometimes when there is a show that is a paid show only because that's the only way to get it without piracy. But for most people, if a show allows you to listen and just says, hey, if you like the show, send some value back our way, about 1% of the people do. And if that stays at that percentage, you're still going to have the same issues with something like this. But The hope is, I believe, that making it easy and low cost, this will be a way that more people will jump into that percent and make it a much bigger than 1% in order to make sure that the shows that they enjoy listening to are funded and can continue to produce the content that the people like to hear. So if you're a podcaster, you want to go to Podcast Index org and find out all about the different things you can do. And if you're a podcast listener, 
you either want to go to podcastindex.org and look at the list of apps that you can use. Right now, it is a very small list. If you want to try the value thing, that would be PodFriend, which works on Windows and in a web browser. PodStation, which is a Chrome browser add-on. Sphinx Chat, which is available on iOS, Android, Mac, Windows, and Linux. Or the Breeze app, and that is iOS and Android. Again, you can find a list of apps at podcastindex.org and get involved and support the shows that you enjoy listening to. But there are some uh, news stories this week, including Facebook, their oversight board. And we've talked about this, I believe, here. If not, it was over on Grumpy Old Ben's, the show I do with Ryan Bemrose, how the Facebook oversight board at the time, I think, was like 18 people. It's up to 20 now. But it is pretty much a completely left-leaning group of folks that looked at the Facebook and Instagram ban of Donald J. Trump, which has been going on since January. And the decision that they came down with was not a big surprise to me, except for the fact that they added a caveat to the yeah, we'll uphold this, you know, Donald Trump bad. But they added a caveat to what Facebook did to Donald Trump, saying that Facebook really should review the arbitrary indefinite ban, saying that the company violated its own rules by banning Donald Trump in such a way. A quote from this body, whatever you want to call them, this oversight board is, uh, quote, Facebook cannot make up the rules as it goes. Well, they can kind of. And anyone concerned about its power should be concerned about allowing this. Having clear rules that apply to all users and Facebook is essential for ensuring the company treats users fairly. And that I would agree with that any of these social media companies, when you're going to be so blatantly obvious by banning Donald Trump indefinitely for fear that he would incite violence, and then you sit silent when Maxine Waters goes out and says some way more incendiary things. I mean, if you understand what words in the English language mean, there is no question that Maxine Waters did more to incite violence than Donald Trump did. But Facebook, silent on that. Instagram, silent on that. Twitter, silent. Because anti-Maxine, it's a lefty-righty thing. And that's where the problems really begin for so much of this. And we've harped on that for a long time, is that you have different rules based upon the political leanings of who you want to enforce them against. So if somebody on the left says something completely horrible and vile against a conservative, they let that kind of go. Nobody worries about that. Nobody takes that down. Nobody takes action. Nobody gets banned. That goes the other way around. And a conservative says something really vile about a liberal then we're going to we're going to take big action. We're going to ban you for life. And that is a problem with anything 
if you really want fairness and the left doesn't, but if you really want fairness, it's okay to have rules. It's okay to have standards. It's okay to have laws if we want to take this to the level of what's going on in the country. It's okay for all of these things to be in place as long as everybody is treated equally, everybody is policed equally, and everybody is prosecuted equally. And that is certainly not what we have in America right now or on social media. You can tell because there's been about a year of violence going on in Portland, but I think one person has been arrested. I mean, it's something crazy. And I don't think anybody has been tried for anything. They let the violence go if it's a bunch of lefties. I don't know why. Cities that allow this are nuts. There was a guy in the Seattle area. An old guy, I guess, in a car, got to an intersection. Some girl from Antifa jumped on his car. So he gunned it, baby. And the proper thing happened. I was surprised being in the Seattle area. But it sounds like the Antifa protester, if you want to call it a protester, I mean, rioter, looter, criminal. Because when you jump on a random person's car because they just happen to be driving down a street. Yeah. That makes you a criminal. That makes you a lawbreaker. And the fact that that was the person that was in trouble after this, rather than the guy that said, hey, I'm getting the hell out of here when he saw another group of people trying to come and surround his car. We need more of this. Florida, I believe it was, just passed a law that said the similar kind of thing. If you get into an area where people are protesting, they surround your car, they start threatening you. You can hit the gas. If they're in the middle of the road, that's the way it is. Sorry, you don't have that right to intimidate people. You don't have the right to jump on their car. And the minute you decide to do that, you lost any right you have of safety. Once you jump on the hood of somebody's car, if they want to gun it and go 100 miles an hour and you die, that's your problem because you decided to jump on the hood of somebody's car. But I digress. With the Donald Trump thing, The Donald has reemerged with his own website, DonaldJTrump.com, and a feature that's called From the Desk of Donald Trump. But this is something that Donald Trump should have done a long time ago. This is what everybody, I think, at this point should be doing when it comes to social media using any of these services whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or whatever it is, if you're building an audience and it's strictly on one of these platforms, you're doing it wrong. Because if you amass millions of Twitter followers and Twitter bans you, then you're kind of starting at square one again. Same thing with Facebook, same thing with YouTube. And this happens all the time. What you want to be doing is more of an approach that use all of the social media platforms that you can, but make sure those are all just the gateway drug to get people onto a website that you control, that you own, 
that you can't be deplatformed from. So in this case, the DonaldJTrump.com site, if during the time back in January, if this site had existed and Donald Trump had been pushing this every time he was tweeting, you know, if anything, you don't want to actually tweet. You just want to tweet the link to something you said on this site and the message still gets across. The deplatforming, if Twitter removes you, big deal. Because everybody still knows where to find you. If Facebook removes you, big deal. Again, the people that want your message still have a place to go and get that message. And this is something that I think Donald Trump was wrong in saying not everybody has the ability to do this. The quote from him was, I just put out releases that everybody prints what I say. I think it's actually much more elegant than Twitter and it gets the word out just as well. Not everybody can do that, unfortunately, he's saying of putting up his own website. I disagree, Mr. Trump. The ability to have somebody's own website at this point is so easy to set up. It is so inexpensive. Yeah, it's not free if you want to be able to control what's going on, but there are some decent web hosts out there that can be had for just a few bucks a month. For about 50 bucks a year, you can easily get your domain name registered and a web host that is worthy of keeping your message out there in front of people. And that is a very low price to pay for the inability for the rest of the world to deplatform you. And it's something that I recommend everybody does, which is why when it comes to the different podcasts I do, yeah. We're all over the different podcasting apps, but if you were deplatformed, everybody knows I say it in every show and I spell it in every show, which is probably annoying for people, but it's a funny name. So R-A-N-D-U-M-B-Thoughts.com, if we disappear from your favorite podcasting app, you know that's where you should go if you want to see what happened or if there's more content or whatever's going on, but you know that that website exists and it gives somebody like me who is a content creator the ability to have a backup so if twitter deletes the account that we post under doesn't matter you still know where we exist and that is a really good thing now it seems like donald trump is still working on a full-blown social media site which i think will be an interesting addition to the landscape because we see what's going on with the Facebooks and Twitters and Instagrams and how much of the shadow banning and the outright banning is going on. If you're a conservative, Gab and Parler have never really seemed ready for prime time to me. But if there was an actual social media platform that was a defender of free speech, then that I think would be a good addition to that space. Trump's senior advisor, Jason Miller, told Fox News, quote, we'll have additional information coming on that front in the very near future. So we'll see if there is going to be a Trump backed or Trump run social media site. Now, the George Floyd murder trial, we talked about that here on a previous episode. And I said, you know, maybe they came down with the right verdict. But I didn't believe for a moment that 
the police officer in question here, Derek Chauvin, got a fair trial because of people like Aunt Maxine Waters and Joe Biden making statements because of the violence in the city that was going on. And one of the alternate jurors who was released before they start doing the deliberations talked about the fact that every time she left the courthouse, she saw this going on in the streets, streets being blocked. The thugs from places like Antifa and Black Lives Matter out there to intimidate the public as a whole. And I said, there was no way that this did not have an effect on the people of the jury. That this was, even if it was subconsciously, that they didn't want their city to burn down. They didn't want their name to get out. They didn't want to be associated with this at all. Because we saw what happened to the police witness that dared come out and say something the Antifa Black Lives Matter types didn't like. And one of the houses that he used to live in was then vandalized, including a severed pig's head being left on the doorstep. So these people mean business. They know intimidation. And the jurors would have had to been completely brain dead not to understand that. But it also now seems that one of the jurors that was on the jury that convicted Derek Chauvin happened to lie to get on the jury. Specifically, Mr. Mitchell answered no to two questions that were specific about the demonstrations that had been going on. The first question was, did you or someone close to you participate in any of the demonstrations or marches against police brutality that took place in Minneapolis after George Floyd's death? Mr. Mitchell answered, no. The second asked, other than what you have already described above, have you or anyone close to you participated in protests about police use of force or police brutality again? Mr. Mitchell answered no. Now, the Associated Press, believe it or not, had a story which included a photo of Mr. Mitchell from a Black Lives Matter protest in Washington, D.C. last summer, where he is standing with two cousins of his, and he's wearing a T-shirt that says BLM, along with the words, get your knee off of our necks. So. There is no question at all that this gentleman, Brandon Mitchell, lied in order to get onto the jury. He is African-American, but that really shouldn't matter in this case because there were people of all sorts involved in these protests or riots, depending on what time and day you were talking about. But the fact that he lied to get onto the jury and had taken part in these demonstrations wearing a shirt that said, get your knee off of our necks. There is not a question to any rational thinking person that he came in to that trial with his verdict already made up. He can say all he wants that, no, he still had an open mind and he wanted to see what was going to come out with the evidence. But then why lie? When you lie to get onto a jury, and who knows then, there's 11 more jurors, which one of them may or may not have lied to get on the jury. 
This is something that can immediately, of course, invalidate the decision that came down. The lawyers for the police officer, Derek Chauvin, have already filed the proper paperwork because of this. And when you combine this then with the statements that Maxine Waters and Joe Biden were making before that jury decision came down. And I still don't understand how any rational thinking person believes that this guy got a fair trial. And I'm fine with a guilty verdict, but I'm not fine on getting there in the manner that it appears they did. This is a serious offense. If you want to believe that the justice system in the United States is a fair system, then you cannot allow the people charged with coming up with decisions in cases like this. You cannot allow them this kind of leeway. If they lie, to get onto the jury and they lie before the trial starts. This is serious. You would think this would have to lead to a mistrial, but it's a story we're going to have to follow and see where it goes. Because lately, it seems that fear and intimidation can get even the court system to buckle. And if that's going to continue to happen, then I don't know where we go as a country or a society. And before we get into the segment where we thank our donors for supporting us today, I did want to mention a question I got from listener Kendra, who sent it in to Grumpy Old Benz that said, I might be getting the shows mixed up, but I have a question. I'm curious. If you had COVID-19, would you still have gotten vaccinated? And I talked about that in the previous show about getting the vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson. It's been a week and a day now. I still haven't turned into a werewolf, so that's good. But to answer Kendra's question, no, I don't believe I would have gotten a vaccine if I had had COVID prior to that, because all the science points to if you had the disease then you have an immunity to it already. So I don't think there would be a necessity to get one. With that said, I don't believe that the Johnson & Johnson shot would have caused any harm to somebody after getting COVID-19 because it is an inactive cold virus that is part of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, not a COVID-19 that was all about the spike proteins, but I still would then question if anybody getting the mRNA version after getting COVID, that is still where I have more questions than answers. And I think science does too, whether they want to admit it or not, but this is something we're going to have to wait to find out what happens to everybody that's been vaccinated over the next year five years, 10 years down the road. But to answer that simple question, no, I don't think I would have worried about getting vaccinated if I had COVID-19. But everybody, as we talked about on the last episode, you have to do your own homework and decide for yourself. Get the best information you can and don't put 100% of trust in any 
one source. But we do have three people to thank for today's show, partially because it is the first show of May, which means we thank the people over on Patreon. And we do have two over there now. So, yes, this is a very good time to point out how the media uses numbers and stats in a way to make things seem like things are a whole lot worse because, hey, this month in Patreon, we're up 100%. Woo! Yeah, we went up from one person to two, but that's still pretty good. That's over a, that's a hundred percent of an increase. All the donors today coming in at the $5 mark, Brian Janak, Dennis Woods, and our buddy, Mike Riley, the non-Patrioni of the group who came in with $5 and thanked us for helping him hopefully now make his decision on the vaccination situation. Mike is one hell of an artist. He does a lot of comics. You can go to Mike Riley, M-I-K-E-R-I-L-E-Y comics.com and check out his work. He does a lot of art for the No Agenda show, as I do every Thursday and Sunday, and that's available at noagendashow.com. We do appreciate everybody that supports the show. If you want to get in on the fun, go to randomthoughts, R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com slash donate. You can use the donate button to do a one-time or monthly donation on PayPal. You can use the P.O. Box address to send in a check or money order. Make that out to me with a comment for random thoughts. And you can also use any of the cryptocurrencies that are listed there, Bitcoin, Cardano, and Ethereum. No matter how you want to support the show, every one of those ways is very much appreciated, as is you giving us your time to listen to the show on a weekly basis. We will be back next Wednesday for another fun-filled episode of the Random Thoughts Podcast. Until then, I am Darren O'Neill. Thanks for listening.